Hi, welcome to episode four of the Illusions Podcast. I'm Greg Lauer. We'll be picking up in chapter one, and you may recall from previous episodes that chapter one looks like it's written on an old notebook with greasy thumbprints and smudges all over the place. I believe it's written in Richard Bach's own handwriting and was just copied over from his original manuscript, but uh, have not yet been able to confirm that with his representatives. Uh, but picking up in paragraph 21, And it came to pass, when he saw that the multitude thronged him the more day on day, tighter and closer and fiercer than ever they had, when he saw that they pressed him to heal them without rest, and to feed them always with his miracles, to learn for them and to live their lives, he went alone that day unto a hilltop apart, and there he prayed. Now, in that chapter, one of the things that really caught me the first time I read this, and it still catches me to this day, dozens of times later, is the idea that they were pressing him not only to do miracles and to heal them and those things like that, but to learn for them and to live their lives. Because I think to myself, how often do we simply allow some guru or some ancient wisdom to be all the learning and to do all the learning for us and to then just distill everything down into bite-sized nuggets? Um, ironically, I am trying to do exactly that for everyone who listens to this podcast. But I think it's interesting to note how Richard kind of sneaks that in there, that they are pressing him to feed them with miracles and to learn for them and live their lives. How often do we give somebody else the opportunity to live our life so that we can be safe and tidy and not have to deal with any of the troubles around us and we just trust them to get it done? Or we live vicariously through TV shows or movies or things we're watching on streaming platforms. When I was growing up, I knew kids whose parents were living vicariously through them. And the parents were constantly pushing the kids to do more and more and to, to get involved in all manner of athletic endeavors that the kids didn't even like. But the parents were trying to relive the glory days through their kids. And that's not necessarily what Richard is referring to in that paragraph, but I think it does apply that too often we try to either live our lives through other people or we try and let them live lives that we would appreciate and then sort of glom on and take some of the glory or glom on and catch some of the satisfaction from those, those people accomplishing what they accomplish. So picking up with paragraph 22, and he's praying here, and he says, And he said in his heart, Infinite radiant is, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Let me lay aside this impossible task. I cannot live the life of one other soul. Yet ten thousand cry to me for life. I'm sorry I allowed it all to happen. If it be thy will, let me go back to my engines and my tools and let me live as other men. And I love the way Richard characterizes a supreme being here as an infinite radiant is, because he avoids, number one, he avoids the trap that we set for any author who's talking in spiritual terms. We have that trap of our own upbringing and our own filter, our own lens on what the supreme being is supposed to be. And instead he just calls this supreme being an infinite radiant is. Infinite makes perfect sense. Radiant, you know, a shining light 
inborn light that radiates outward from some source that is already inward and perfect and is because it's an infinitely perfect present tense uh, it's kind of like when god told moses if you if you read the old bible stories in the old testament and moses says who shall i tell them is sending me and god says tell them i am and that term i am is a perfect present tense which means it's never past and it's never future, but it's always past, present, and future. It is in the present moment. I love the way he says, I cannot live the life of one other soul, yet 10,000 cry to me for life. I am sorry I allowed it all to happen. I don't remember anywhere in the book yet where the Messiah talked about explicitly allowing this to happen or explicitly doing these things for maybe his own glory, but maybe he was doing them for sadness for the people. Sadness for the people around who did not believe they could do these things for themselves. Or maybe he recognized they were too lazy to do these things for themselves. Or didn't realize they could do these things for themselves. And so he did them for him. But he's now sorry he allowed it all to happen. And I wonder if he's sorry that he allowed it all to happen because... Now he can't even live his own life the way he wants in his own mind. He can't live his life the way he wants. Or I wonder if he's sorry he allowed it all to happen because he's come to realize that by doing these things for the people, he may have taken away either their desire to do them for themselves or he may have inadvertently taught them that they can't do those things for themselves. That may all be wrapped up in there. I think it's kind of an interesting thing to ponder. Picking up with chapter, or I'm sorry, paragraph 23. And a voice spoke to him on the hilltop, a voice neither male nor female, loud nor soft, a voice infinitely kind. And the voice said unto him, Not my will, but thine be done. For what is thy will is mine for thee. Go thy way as other men, and be thou happy on the earth. And the voice of the infinite radiant is, is telling us, that it's, it's not the will of some mystical supreme being that is the most important. It's not the will of that infinite supreme being that makes that being happy. It's us being happy doing what we wish, doing what we would do, living the lives we would live. And I think the, the key here is doing that as long as we're doing it consciously, as long as we're making those choices for ourselves and doing things consciously and not just doing them by default. And I think that's wrapped up in the idea of will, because when you talk about someone's will or like God's will or my will or thy will be done, when we use the word will in that case, that is conscious choice as to what someone wants in their lives or doesn't want in their lives or what they want to do or don't want to do. But it's all conscious choice. None of it is by default. And none of it is by just lazily and passively accepting whatever happens. Picking up with paragraph 24. And hearing, the master was glad and gave thanks and came down from the hilltop humming a little mechanic song. And when the throng pressed him with its woes, beseeching him to heal for it and learn for it and feed it nonstop from his understanding and to entertain it with his wonders. He smiled upon the multitude and said pleasantly unto them, I quit. 
I love that. Number one, I love how dramatic the scene is as he's coming down from the hilltop. The crowd sees him and starts to press on him again. They're crying out for them to heal. They're crying out for him to learn for them again. And this is the second time Richard's talked about that. So I think he is hinting that it is really up to us to learn for ourselves, to extract whatever lessons and wisdom we can extract from this life. Yes, books can help. Podcasts can help because they they distill some of the essence of the lesson. They distill years and years and years of practical experience down into a few hundred pages. Or in a case of a podcast, they distill hundreds of thoughts down to just a few minutes. And those are helps for learning. Given that he has suggested that one of the problems with the crowds is they wanted someone else to do their learning for them. I think that's kind of an important idea that we need to bear in mind as we continue through the book. I think, and a spoiler alert, we're going to see that idea repeated over and over and over throughout the book because uh, this reluctant messiah, the character, we don't know his name yet, he is constantly trying to tell Richard that he needs to remember these lessons or remember things he's learned in, in past experiences or he needs to learn new things for himself, take notice of what's going on around him, think it through, and learn from that. And then my favorite part of the whole book, uh, minus, well, let me let me rephrase that. My favorite part of this section, because the book is loaded with favorite parts, but my favorite part of this section is when the reluctant Messiah simply says, I quit. That's so contrary to how we think of Messiah's Especially if you came up in a Judeo-Christian upbringing or mindset, the Messiah, the only way the Messiah could quit was by dying on a cross, being buried and then raised again on the third day. That's the only way the Messiah could quit, and even in that, the Messiah did not quit. But in this case, he's demonstrating for us that we don't have to do anything longer than we want to do it. We don't have to put up with anything. If we're done with a situation, we can say, I quit. Now, I understand that works well in a metaphorical sense carried in a spiritual-based book and may not work well in our reality. I mean, I know if you have bills to pay and you don't like your job, it's not really wise to just walk in and and one day say, I quit, without having something else lined up that's going to help pay the bills. I get that. In fact, I've been in that situation many times myself where something just went haywire on the job. I could no longer handle the job because I was doing all the learning for the people. I was solving all the problems and they weren't doing any of that stuff. And it just got to be too much. But I could not just simply up and say I quit because that particular job, I didn't have anything else lined up to help out with the mortgage and to help out with the other bills. In this case, the reluctant Messiah can simply go back to being a mechanic and just be happy as a clam. Uh, It's paragraph 25. For a moment, the multitude was stricken dumb with astonishment. And I understand for some people the word dumb is going to be kind of a triggering situation, but understand in the mid to late 70s when this was written, uh, the word dumb was a very common synonym for mute. I think of the word whenever I read this paragraph, I think of it as, for a moment the multitude was dumbfounded with astonishment. They were so astonished they could not speak, they didn't even know what to think. And 26, 
And he said unto them, If a man told God that he wanted most of all to help the suffering world, no matter the price to himself, and God answered and told him what he must do, should the man do as he is told. And I love the way that paragraph sets up this new section. And this new section is going to give, the the, the reluctant Messiah is taking an opportunity to completely flip the crowd's thinking on its head. And he's going to completely flip over their thought process. And he's going to do that by making them confront their own thoughts and their own desires and their own selfishness regarding his position as Messiah. So he says, If a man told God that he wanted most of all to help the suffering world, no matter the price to himself, and God answered and told him what he must do, should the man do as he told? 27, the crowd answers, Of course, Master, cried the many. It should be pleasure for him to suffer the tortures of hell itself, should God ask for it. 28, And the reluctant Messiah continues, no matter what those tortures, nor how difficult the task. 29, the crowd says, honor to be hanged, glory to be nailed to a tree and burned, if so be that God has asked, said they. 30, and what would you do, the master said unto the multitude, if God spoke directly to your face and said, I command that you be happy in the world as long as you live, what would you do then? 31. And the multitude was silent. Not a voice, not a sound was heard upon the hillsides across the valleys where they stood. And I love this is the second time in just a few moments he has left the crowd completely dumbfounded. The first time being when he said, I quit. And the second time here when he is using their own thoughts to turn their thoughts on their head. And number one, I think just at the surface, that presents an interesting opportunity for us to learn how to learn the way the Messiah did, ask ourselves these questions. Uh, If you've never run into this sort of technique before, it's called Socratic questioning. After Socrates, Socrates back in ancient Greece used to teach his students by asking them a series of carefully chosen questions. And as they answered those questions, they basically drew the learning out of themselves. They used the wisdom they had in the moment to gain the next step of wisdom. And this is a great example of Socratic questioning uh, as listed in this book. And he starts off pretty much framing the question in the way that we might understand typical Messiah situations to work. You know, our assumption is based on primarily our Judeo-Christian mindset our assumption is a Messiah has to suffer so that we can get away from suffering or has to suffer even the tortures of hell itself. So said the crowd has to suffer those tortures and deprivation and things like that so that we can benefit so that we can learn from that, that master so that we can be healed so that master can work miracles for us. And the reluctant Messiah brings them to a complete screeching halt by saying, well, what about if God didn't say that? What if God, in fact, said the exact opposite and said, my command for you is that you be happy in the world as long as you live? What if that's how God commanded the Messiah to be? In 31, the multitude was silent. Not a voice, not a sound was heard upon the hillsides across the valleys where they stood. 
Picking up in 32, and the master said unto the silence, In the path of our happiness shall we find the learning for which we have chosen this lifetime. So it is that I have learned this day, and choose to leave you now to walk your own path as you please. And I love a couple things about that one paragraph there. The master said unto the silence. Uh, Richard could easily have said the master said unto the multitude, or the master said unto the crowd. But he didn't. He specifically said, the master said unto the silence, because at this point the crowd is so dumbfounded and the crowd has been with their expectations completely shattered and their mindset completely flipped on its head. They don't know what to do and now they're perfectly silent and nothing is going on. And I think it's interesting to note, this is one of those times where the reluctant Messiah, who has said he would only talk to them in parables, and I mentioned in a previous episode that what wise teachers and ancient teachers used to speak in parables a lot because sometimes when you confront somebody directly with an idea that does not match their current expectation, you end up with a situation where they don't know what to say and do, or they can't accept it, or they fall dumbfounded, and it takes so long for their mind to process a whole new way of seeing things that it can be almost shattering. So a lot of ancient teachers used to use parables because the parables would reveal the wisdom within to the student as the student grew in awareness and understanding and wisdom. But in this case, the reluctant Messiah, who has said, I quit. So he's no longer their Messiah or their master. He's no longer their worker of miracles. So he hits him with that stuff right square in the center of the forehead and says... Well, what if all this stuff you believe about messiahs has been false and God only wants us to be happy? What about that? But in paragraph 32, he says something I think is really profound. In the path of our happiness, shall we find the learning for which we have chosen this lifetime? And I think back to all the different phases of my life as I went from adolescence to high school and then from high school to the military and then the military to my career and all the different phases of my career, I don't remember consciously sitting down and choosing each next step based on the learning that it had for me. And I don't remember consciously choosing each of those many, many lifetimes specifically for the learning. But looking back on it in, in the, with the perspective of this paragraph, in the path of our happiness, and I did choose each of those next steps because of the happiness that I believed it would bring me and my family. But in the path of our happiness, shall we find the learning for which we have chosen this lifetime? And again, I don't, I don't remember consciously choosing each of those next steps for the learning that they might have for me. But looking back through this perspective, looking back through the lens of this one paragraph, I can start to see where not only did I believe I would be happier and happier, but I'm the kind of person who seeks out that next opportunity because of what I might learn. And that is honestly something I have learned about myself only in the last couple of years that I choose each next step in my life, not because I'm expecting a gigantic financial payoff or not because it's going to make our lives more comfortable from a material standpoint, but because there's something fascinating about that next step or something fascinating about that promotion or the position that's held within that promotion. 
There's something fascinating that I don't yet know, and I enjoy the challenge of learning that something new. So it's only been within the last couple of years that I have been able to look back at my lifetime and see how each next step has been perfectly aligned with this paragraph. In the path of our happiness, shall we find the learning for which we have chosen this lifetime? So I've learned this day, and I choose to leave you now to walk your own path as you please. Since he has quit, he's not their Messiah. He's not their master, their worker of miracles, their feeder. He's not the one who's learning for them anymore. He says, well, I'm leaving you now. Go walk your own path as you please. And he's already told them, what if that's the way God wants it to be? What if that's the way the infinite radiant is, wants it for us, that we walk our own path as we please? And in that, that's how we gain happiness. That's how we gain satisfaction. That's how we make our mark on the world. That's how we be our own master and our own learner and our own Messiah. So it's time to to pick up and leave and let these people do their own learning and let them choose their own miracles and let them believe. And as they believe, so it is. And the last paragraph in chapter one, and he went his way through the crowds and left them. And he returned to the everyday world of men and machines. And in doing so, he has chosen his own path. He's chosen to go as he pleases. And we'll see in later parts of the book, we'll see where that was such an earth-shattering, mind-altering concept for people back in the day that some of the characters can't even believe what they're seeing. They've heard of this Messiah who just up and quit. But it's such a such a mind-blowing concept that they're not entirely sure how to take it when they find out that it's him. So let me ask you, as you look back on your life, going through the path of your happiness, as you've taken each promotion or as you've moved through school or as you've as you've just lived your life and gone from, from one step to the next within your life, what did you learn from that next step? Or what did you expect to learn from that next step? Did you learn that? How long did that happiness endure? Did the happiness endure only long enough to let you learn what you had to learn and then you moved on again looking for the next happiness? Or did you find happiness within that situation and in so doing also continue to find opportunities to learn and to grow and new lessons to incorporate and new wisdom starting to flourish within you? Just just a question to ponder. So there you have it. There's chapter one. We're all wrapped up with chapter one. Our next episode will start chapter two. Chapter two begins more of the narrative story part of the book. I mean, the whole of chapter one has been a narrative story, but it's also contained a little allegory within that piece of narrative. And again, as we get to the end of the book, we'll understand why that first chapter was even written. Not only does it set the stage for the rest of the book, But, spoiler alert, as you get towards the end, we understand that this sets up kind of a circular situation. And that's uh, that's actually a really good thing. I think of this as more of a, and not just a continuous circle that goes round and round and round and we eventually get back to the same place we left off. I think of this as a spiral that continues to go upward as our awareness and our wisdom increase 
we continue to go around and around and around to the same types of situations. We learn the lessons from those situations, and then we can move on to the next level of whatever the lesson is for us to learn. Continuing to gain awareness, continuing to thrive and flourish and live out our unique humanity and live out the unique being that we are. Hopefully you've enjoyed chapter one and we'll pick up again, like I said, we'll pick up again next week with chapter two, beginning the narrative section and introducing the two main characters. There is a ton to learn in this book yet. So hopefully you're enjoying the journey with me. If you do enjoy the podcast, please share with a friend so that the show can grow and reach more people and Richard Bach's teaching and Richard Bach's perspective on the world can be shared with more people and they can open up their minds and understand themselves and their world around them a little bit differently than they have before. If you have just one moment to spare, I would ask that you please leave a rating and review. The ratings and reviews help me to improve the show and help others to find the show. We'll talk to you next week. Bye for now.